0: Fill them in. There's some good old songs. Never, never get tired of those. Well, it's sure good to be here tonight. You can be turning in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 28. Finally, finally, we're going to get to it. I I want to thank Brother Rick and uh, Brother Kenneth uh, for filling in in my absence. I want to thank you for your prayers and uh, uh, still got some problems but I figured out that um, like I said I had a I thought a good day Sunday and uh, if I can because uh, usually I get up in the morning I've got two or three sometimes four good hours before the pain starts and then after that it's uh, it's it's all downhill but if I can get a nap about uh, two o'clock or something like that uh, it's the way I lay I can only lay certain ways and it's kind of resets that nerve in there or gets the pressure off or whatever it does. And so I, I guess I'm just trying to say thank you for your prayers. And uh, uh, I, I'm just thankful the Lord enabled me to be here tonight. Well, Proverbs chapter 28, Lord willing, maybe we can make it through this without any more interruptions, but we will see how long it takes and we're just going to go as we normally do. From one verse to another, we don't have any particular outline, and unless there's something that just sort of comes together, and I'll make mention of that. Uh, I've heard a lot of comments this last week or so in regards to the book of James. In fact, I know there are some that have chosen that as their next 30-day study, which I think that's a, a good choice. And and I've often said, it's something I heard probably a long time ago, but, uh, you know, James is sort of like the New Testament Proverbs. You know, it's not made up of Proverbs or anything like that, but it deals with such practical issues. And that's what's so great about the book of Proverbs. I mean, it gets right down, like old J. Vernon McGee used to say, down where the rubber meets the road, right down where we live. And uh, we all need that. So, verse number 1, Proverbs chapter 28. The wicked flee when no man pursueth, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Now, the first part of this naturally reminds us uh, of a guilty conscience and the fact that a guilty conscience produces fear. In other words, sin condemns whenever there's no one accusing. I'll never forget years ago, and I can't remember the details of it, but someone decided that that they were going to write a, a letter to, uh, I think it was like the ten richest men in New York or Chicago or something like that, ten very influential men, and uh, wrote a note uh, saying, all is discovered, flee immediately. <laughs> and almost all of them got on a plane and took off, got out of there. Because they were hiding something and uh, they decided, you know, I, I, I need to get out of Dodge while the getting is good. Well, a guilty conscience does that. You go all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible when Adam sinned against God. And what was the first thing he did? He hid himself in the garden. Now, you, you know that there's a serious problem when you want to hide yourself. From God himself. I mean, you know, because nobody cares more about us than God does. Nobody helps us more than God does. And for someone to say, you know, I, I, I'm going to hide from God. I'm going to cut myself off from God. You know, there's a problem. And there was, there was a serious problem. The problem was not with God. The problem is they had disobeyed God and uh, that produced fear in their heart. Isaiah said, there is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. And that is exactly why there are so many people that are miserable today. Right here in America, for example, you know, we talk about uh, the land flowing with milk and honey. Well, that's kind of what America has become. We We just live in the lap of luxury in America. We have more than anybody on the face of the earth. And you would think we would be the happiest people in all of the world. And yet, for the most part, people are absolutely miserable. They're like those described over in the book of Leviticus, chapter 26, verse 36. says, "...the sound of a shaken leaf shall chase them, and they shall flee." as fleeing from a sword, and they shall fall when none pursueth. So uh, again, because of that overwhelming fear, even though when there's no danger present, uh, there's no one after them, yet because of that fear, uh, you know, they, they take action. But look at the contrast here in the second part of the verse, but the righteous... But the righteous, so here we have the contrast between those that are wicked and those that are righteous. It says the righteous are bold as lions. So righteousness produces courage. And boy, we go through the Bible and we see so many examples of that. I think about Moses, for example, it says, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. Whenever you know that you're doing the right thing, you don't have anything to fear but, you know, it's whenever we're out of the will of God, that's when fear overwhelms us, and Moses knew he was doing exactly what he ought to be doing, and so not fearing the wrath of the king, he forsook Egypt. Caleb and Joshua later on risk their very lives. They risk being stoned. You remember there in Numbers chapter number 14, of course, the spies have been sent out into the land, and they come back with a report, and and uh, you know all of them except Caleb and Joshua said uh, well you know I, we we better not go said we're like grasshoppers in their sight they're giants in the land we're like a bunch of grasshoppers are going to squash us and Caleb and Joshua said now we ought to just go ahead and go and they set themselves against the majority vote And and the reason they had the courage to do that is because they knew they were doing the right thing. And you go right on through the Old Testament. I think about Elijah standing against the wicked king Ahab. And if ever there was a man you didn't want to cross, it was Ahab. But Elijah stood firm for what he knew was right. I think about Nehemiah, of course, and Nehemiah rebuilding the wall Naturally, when we set out to do something for God, there are going to be those that are going to set out to try to deter us from accomplishing our mission. So Nehemiah is in the process of rebuilding the wall, and the enemies come out against him, and they use several different tactics in order to try to drive him away from his work. And Nehemiah said, Should a man such as I flee? Well, in other words, you know, that was his way of saying, you know, look, my purpose is pure. I know that my uh, my my mission is God sent. This is the right thing to do, and I am not leaving, uh, regardless of what you do. Reminds me of the three Hebrew children, of course. Reminds me of Daniel. And you go to the New Testament, and you see the apostle Paul and the opposition that he faced, and yet Paul... I mean, whenever they're they're the elders at Ephesus, they're begging him not to go to Jerusalem. They said the spirit has revealed to us that you're going to get hurt. I mean, you, you know, you 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 might get killed. And, and he was determined that even if it cost him his life, that's where he was going. Now that's courage. And look, you and I might be in different situations. You know, I've I, I've. All of these more than 50 years of preaching, I've never been called upon to face, uh, uh, you know, a bunch of lions. I've never had to uh, face some bad things, but not lions anyway. I've never, never been threatened to be thrown in a fiery furnace. But we all find ourselves in different situations that call for courage, to stand up and do what is right instead of caving in to the fear and the pressure that's on us. And folks, that's come from knowing that in your heart you're doing what is right. And when you're doing what is right, you don't need to apologize for it. You don't need to run from it. You need to stand firm because it's the right thing to do. And that's what we see here. So there's the contrast between the two, between those that are wicked and those that are righteous. Now, verse number two, for the transgression of a land, many are the princes thereof. That's another way of saying, you know, many are the presidents or the rulers or the leaders of the land. But by a man of understanding and knowledge... The state thereof shall be prolonged. Now, the point of this is that sin causes the government to constantly be changing hands. In other words, you've got, you know, the king on the throne for, let's say, a year instead of ten, and all of a sudden there's turmoil and strife in the land, and because of their sin, God allows the state to be overthrown, so now the king is gone. Here comes another king, and, uh, and so it's in a state of turmoil all of the time. And let me tell you, our security is not in the might of our military. Our military is very important to this country. It's important because of the fact that we ought to do what we can, what common sense would tell us in order to protect ourselves. But all of the protection in the world is not going to help us when our lives are contrary to the Word of God. So stability in government is the result of righteous living. And notice what he says here. Here's the contrast. But by a man of understanding... Now, in the first part, we're talking about having many different leaders because there's been all of this turmoil. The government is changing hands. But now we're talking about a singular individual, a man of understanding and knowledge. The state thereof shall be prolonged. And so consequently, there is peace and prosperity in the land. This man is enabled to rule for a long time, all as a result of the fact that he has understanding and knowledge. You know, most of us, most of us get so irritated with politics, and for good reason. I mean, it's got to be uh, politics and Hollywood's got to be about the two most sickening things that that I can think of. But the fact of the matter is. This is why we need we need to vote wisely, pray fervently and li- and live righteously. Vote wisely, pray fervently, live righteously. Because there's a lot depending upon the actions of God's people in this country. And you might hate politics, but you better take it serious. Because there, there are those that beyond any shadow of a doubt want to do everything in their power to destroy the America that you and I know. There's no doubt about that. And that's why we've got to vote wisely. We've got to pray fervently. We've got to live righteously because if we don't stand up for what's right, you better believe there are those that will come in and they'll, they'll change everything. And, and, and by the way, that can happen almost overnight, and that, that's the scary part of it. A lot of times we think well, it's going to take absolutely years for something to happen, and uh, it, it, it can change overnight. And so we need to take this as a serious matter because our national security depends upon, upon the understanding and the knowledge of the people that we put in office because you know it look it's our choice it's our choice and we can't put the wrong people in office and then sit back and say well we're going to have a prayer meeting pray that god spares our nation which leaveth no food now whenever you think about of course we here you know here in houston we know all about sweeping rains don't we you know we <laughs> I I never in all of my life envisioned water over four feet deep in the house and in the yard. And since we've moved back in, I've stood out there in the backyard and looked and just trying to imagine that much water. It's it's amazing. And, And the things that we have worked for and the things that we have built I mean, a storm can come in and take all of the way, that, that away in a heartbeat. When I pastored in Tennessee, and, and of course, back there, it was an agricultural area. I mean, people depended upon the, their livelihood from the crop. And, boy, you get a bad year, some bad storm or whatever it might be, a drought or whatever... And, uh, and, and they were always at risk of losing everything. So he's drawing a comparison here between that sweeping rain that just destroys everything, leaving people without any food, notice, and a poor man. Now here's the kicker the poor man that oppresseth the poor. Boy, I look at that and it seems so strange because, it, it, here he's talking about people, you know, who, uh, who are poor, oppressing the poor. Uh, or at least people who were poor and have now, you know, enriched themselves in some way. And so now they're in a position of authority or power or whatever it is. And they turn around and oppress the poor. Look, that's what happens when people don't know the Lord. When people don't know the Lord, then they don't care about anybody else. And some of the most severe oppression comes from people who once were oppressed themselves. That seems odd because my first thought is, you know, they're poor. You know, they know what it's like to suffer through this. So surely they, they wouldn't oppress these other poor people over here. You know, they've been hurt. They don't want to hurt them. But evidently there are some people that do. And, and and a part of part of that might be explained by the fact that in their oppression and you've often heard me say that you know our our trials either make us bitter or better and in their oppression they become so enraged so bitter so eaten up with anger that they vent their frustration on these people You know, the same thing happens in in a different way in regards to people. Let's say that maybe they've come from a family where the dad was a drunk and unfaithful to the mother and a wife beater and all of that. And you would think children raised in that environment would grow up to never repeat the atrocities that they've witnessed in their family. But do you know what happens a lot of the times? They turn around and repeat the sins of the Father. You would think they would know better. But but look, folks, this is what happens when we don't have a right relationship with the Lord, and only the love of Christ is going to cause us to have a love for one another. I mean take this poor man, let's assume that he has gathered some riches, he is he's finally reached a place that he is in authority and power. And now he is able to impose hardships or blessings upon these other people. And for him to turn around and to mistreat them, as we see pictured here, could only indicate the fact that here is somebody that has no concern about God's law, no love for God, and consequently, no concern for other people, you see. All of our social ills can be traced back to a spiritual problem. And all of this nonsense about, well, you know, I'm like I am because of, you know, because of my background. I'm like I am because of what I experienced years ago. No, you're like you are because of choices that you make. Now, that look, that's not to say that nurture doesn't in some way influence us. I believe, you know, nurture can give us a greater propensity to certain sins, for example. But nurture does not have to dictate what we do. We have a choice to make. And whenever we, when we put God first in our life, when when obeying his law, when following his rules, when loving him supremely is our main goal in life, all of a sudden we're going to see that we have a real genuine concern for other people and we can spend all the money in our coffers we can exhaust ourselves and set up every program known to man trying to educate people and uh, you know in some w- in some way to bring them to their senses so that we'll treat one another uh, in a respectful way but until we get things right with God it's going to be a waste of time and a waste of money And so that's the root of the problem right there. It was back then, and it is today. Now verse number four. They that forsake the law. Well, we've kind of been talking about that, haven't we? They that forsake the law praise the wicked. But such as keep the law, contend with them. So here we see... uh, respect and disrespect for God's law. notice there's not any middle ground here. I mean, we either do or we don't. We either respect the laws that God has given or we disrespect them. And notice it says here concerning the lawbreakers that they praise the wicked. Now think about that for a little while because you know, I know I know a lot of people that have no concern for God's laws. They violate God's righteous standards, right and left, and they, they don't give it a second thought. They don't care. They're determined they're going to live any way that they please. But most of those people would not get up, let's say, publicly and say... You know, I just heard about that shooting out there. Praise God for that guy that went there in that school and shot all of those kids, you know. Praise God. I mean, if he, he must have a lot of courage to do something like that. Or nobody would get up and say, you know, my neighbor just ran away with another man's wife last week and left his family and what have you. Boy, I, uh, that, that that man's really something, you know. Nobody gets up and just you know, publicly praises somebody that is a lawbreaker. But in essence, whenever we ourselves forsake the law, it's the same as though we are extending praise to those who do wickedly, you see. In other words, by our actions. It's not by our testimony. It's not by the words of our mouth because we wouldn't do that. It would be so very improper, you see. But we turn right around, and it's as though we applaud wickedness. Why? How do we do it? Because we're involved in it. Our sin might not be the same as their sin, but we're violating the same righteous standard that God has given. Some way we get it in our mind, you know, that there's all these big sins and little sins, and as long as our sin is different than the other guy's sin, ours isn't so bad. Well, yeah, it's bad. It's just as bad because it's a violation of God's righteous standard. But notice he says, but such as keep the law, contend with them. And and, and whenever you think of that word contend, you're talking about standing in opposition against someone. And so, those who have respect for the law of God, they will not, they cannot remain silent amid the evil that they live in. They're going to be a voice for righteousness. Now, you know, some people are taking that such an extreme that they become actually a troublemaker, because all they want to do is all they want to do is fight this and fight that and so forth, and they're more concerned about, you know fighting the things that are wrong than they are living the way that is right. And so we can go to that extreme. But the fact of the matter is, when our great concern is to show respect for God's law, we're going to stand up and contend against the forces of evil. And the problem is, here in America, there are too many times that we've been silenced by that crowd. Oh, because we're afraid that we might offend them. Somebody said, well you're gonna, you're gonna run them off, you know, if you preach real hard like that. Where are you, where are you gonna run them to? To hell number one or hell number two? I mean, where are they gonna go? I mean, if they're lost and on their way to hell, somebody needs to sound a warning. If what they're doing is sinful, somebody needs to say, what you're doing is wrong. I've had to tell members of my own family, look, what you're doing is wrong. It's terrible. It's sinful. It's awful. You're going to get hurt. You're going to hurt other people. But I want you to know that regardless of what you do, I love you nevertheless, but I'm not going to stop telling you that what you're doing is wrong. Some of them don't like it, but that's all right. Because, I look, the moment the moment we allow them to silence us, the moment that we start tolerating what we know to be sinful in God's sight, they start taking that as though it's some sort of approval. Because now we're not speaking out about it. That's exactly what's happened with a lot of preachers and churches over the years. I mean, there was a time, you know, whenever... Uh, whatever, I'm, I don't want to get into naming certain sins tonight, but I very well could name some things that back when I started preaching, let me tell you, uh, things that were unspeakable, not even discussed, uh, not even proper conversation, especially in mixed company, and all of a sudden we've had that crap crammed down our throat to the point that we're afraid we're going to hurt somebody's feelings if we talk about that, and so we just stop talking about it. What a sad indictment that is against us. Notice, but such as keep the law contend contend with them. With who? With those that forsake the law. So we need to ask God to give us the courage to stand up for what is right, but remember this, when you do, the Bible says, speak the truth in love. that That's the key right there. I wish I had uh, put that in practice the first year of, my, of being a pastor, because I didn't. I, the only thing I was concerned about was speaking the truth, and I did. I mean, what I said was, was scriptural, but I really didn't care who liked it or lumped it or why. I, there was no, absolutely no love whatsoever, and I'm ashamed of that, and I'm, I'm thankful that God helped me to change that because whenever, whenever we're dealing with the faults and failures of other people, we need to do so in a way that at least they know we genuinely care about them even though we're standing against them. But don't you dare let them close your mouth and force you to remain silent. Well, verse 5 evil men understand not judgment. That's pretty evident. But they that seek the Lord understand all things. So here's a contrast between ignorance and understanding. And Solomon says evil men understand not judgment. In other words, their concept of right and wrong is perverted. They're not able to discern between truth and falsehood. They don't understand God's Word, nor do they understand God's ways. They're ignorant of their duty. They're ignorant as to their doom. They're mentally confused, and they're morally corrupt. They're like those that was described in Ephesians 4.18. Listen to this. Speaking of unsaved people, and Paul says, having the understanding darkened. You know, you might have heard preachers say that sin blinds and then it binds, and that's true. Sin has a way of blinding us to reality. Having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance, That is in them because of the blindness of their heart. And Jesus spoke about that. He said in the book of John chapter 3, and this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. You see, a person might be a scholar in worldly matters and yet morally have no sense of right and wrong. And the world is full of people like that. We see them everywhere. We scratch our head and wonder how in the world can anybody think this is right or acceptable? I mean, just it's like it's common to hear people say, well, common sense isn't common anymore. Boy, that's the understatement of the year. It's not common anymore. And you wonder why it is that people are are so ignorant of things that are so important. It's because of their wickedness. It's because of their their sinfulness. And, and when it, when we turn our back on the light of God's Word, then we're going to walk in darkness, you see. And you can't educate a person out of that. You take the major universities today, and especially the Ivy League schools and so forth, that are so full of liberals... Do you realize there was a time that those schools were, were started as Christian universities? I mean, it's amazing when you look back and you see what has happened to them over the years. But that's what happens when all of a sudden unsaved people get in positions of leadership and now they are blind as to the truth. And now they are educating a generation of people that are determined to be leaders in this country. People that have no understanding, you see. But look at the second half. They that seek the Lord understand all things. Now, I don't think for a moment that is to say they have the answer to every question. Question. I don't think that's to say they have absolute knowledge of all things in that sense, but it's talking about they have an overarching knowledge, let's say, of human nature and how the world works and what God demands. In other words, they know what is morally right. And, and that, notice that's the result of those that seek the Lord. That's the, that's the real key to it. They seek the Lord. And I believe it was old Matthew Henry that says something to the effect that whenever, whenever man sets the glory of God as his main goal in life, you know, that's going to shape and fashion how he thinks and everything he does. And that is exactly right. Because when we are most concerned about the glory of God and the will of God, then the manner in which we live is going to demonstrate that. So he says, those that seek the Lord understand all things. So people are confused, and as a result of that, there's conflict. Why? Because people refuse to seek the Lord. That's the whole problem. Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to what? His own way. So it's no wonder we end up in the ditch whenever we forsake the path of righteousness. Well, I think we can take one more tonight before we close. Verse number 6. Better is the poor that walketh in his uprightness than he that is perverse in his ways though he be rich. You know, we live in a day where a lot of people think, you know, that being rich is the end of all things. If I can, you know, if I can just be rich, if I can live the right lifestyle of the rich and famous, if I can just get there, nothing else is going to matter, then I'll be happy, then I'll be successful. Well, not necessarily. This is reminding us that righteousness is better than riches. And we need to consider this context here because there are a lot of folks that forsake the path of righteousness in the pursuit of riches. And, and what a horrible mistake that is. When you get home, go to First Timothy chapter number 6 and read verses 7 through 12. And that, that's that section that tells us the love of money is the root of all evil. And it talks about people piercing themselves through with many sorrows. Why? All because of the love of of money, you see. Now, I realize as I say that, and as I read this verse, I understand the world is not going to agree. Uh, you know, when if I, if I stand up and I say, you know, a godly poor man is a lot better off than a rich ungodly man, most of them would say, well, just give me the riches, you know, and and I'll be just fine. The problem is, they're not. They don't understand that their character counts more than the content of their bank account. They don't understand that their happiness doesn't depend upon the things that they desire happening to them. Happiness is the result of holiness, and holiness is the result of us having a right relationship with God. And boy, if you want evidence of this, all you've got to do is look around. I, I mentioned Hollywood a while ago. Just look to Hollywood. Look at all of those that had it all. I mean, Elvis Presley, Janis Joplin, Marilyn Monroe, and all the, had all of this fortune and all of this fame. And if riches could make a person happy. Look, I could stand here and and, and if I came prepared to read a bunch of quotes that I have from rich people, I'm talking about those that were billionaires. And I could stand here and read one testimony after another after another of what they said in regards to the disappointment of their riches. You know, in the beginning, in the beginning that was all that mattered and now they've got all of this wealth but they have no peace, they have no happiness, they're absolutely miserable. And that's why the Lord's trying to get us to see, better is the poor that walketh in his uprightness. So, you know, you'd be better if you don't have a penny to your name, you're better off, you know, if you're trying to live a righteous life than if you had $10 million and out here living it up, you see. Let me, let me just comment at least on verse 7 because it ties into everything we just said. Whoso keepeth the law is a wise son, but he that's a companion of riotous men shameth his father. I'm not going to comment on that, I just wanted to read the first part of it, because everything we've said in some way relates to God's law, God's standard, God's desire, and whoso keepeth the law is a wise son. Maybe we need to, you know, just stop and ask ourselves, just how wise are we? Are we wise enough? to order our life according to the teachings of God's Word? Are we wise enough to do what we know that God commands from us? Because look, it's not like that in some way or another that God is made better, you know, as a result of our responding to His will. I mean, God's God. He's perfect. He's not going to change in any way whatsoever. He doesn't need to improve. Those laws are for our benefit, for our welfare. And it's kind of like somebody liking the the law to a fence that God put up, you know, to a barrier to keep us from getting hurt. And so when God says, thou shalt not, or God says, don't do this or don't do that, God's really saying, don't hurt yourself. Aren't you glad that you serve a God that cares that much about you? Amen. He really does. And he proved it when he gave his son on the cross at Calvary. Thank you so much for being here tonight. And Lord willing, and the creek don't rise. Well, we'll pick up in verse number 7 next week.